Good evening, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm going to read a couple of verses out of Lamentations chapter 3. And then we're going to worship the Lord and get into Hosea chapter 5 and 6 tonight. That's the plan. This is in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19. It says, Remember my affliction and my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul remembers and it sinks within me. This I recall to my mind and therefore I have hope. It's through the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Wow. It's good stuff. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. They're new every morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you, God, that you sent your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you came and that you took away our sin, Lord. And now we can come to you, we can call on you. Lord, your favor is upon our life. You're with us, you'll never leave us. The work you started, you'll finish. Thank you that you've clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus. This is all a gift. This is all a gift. The forgiveness, the clothing of your righteousness. We thank you for this precious gift, Lord. We're painfully aware of our sin, of our shortcomings, but we thank you that you're not discouraged, Lord, that you know what you're doing, you know what you got into when you called us, and that you're gonna finish what you started. We give you this time, we pray you'd bless our time together in worship and in Hosea tonight, all for your glory and our greater joy. We ask it all in Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said together, Amen. Hey, take a minute before we start, maybe reach out and find someone, say hi, get a name, introduce yourself. We're glad you're here.
Thank you, Lord, for this night that you've blessed us with, Lord, that you've given us another day of life, Lord, another day to worship you, to serve your kingdom, Father God, to be drawn close to you, and to ultimately be prepared for the time and day that we meet you, Father. We thank you, Lord, for your hand upon our lives, and tonight as we worship you, draw us near to your heart, Lord God, free our minds of any distractions tonight, God. We want to be with you, we want to commune with you, Father. Have your way, we pray in your name. Amen.
God's believers agreed by saying, Amen. And wow, what a great time. <laughs> Thank you guys. What a blessing. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 5. If you're new here, we study on Wednesday nights. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through what we call the Old Testament. Jesus called it the Law and the Prophets. And so we jump right into chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, Hosea says, O priests. Speaking to the priests here of the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes, he says, Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare, a trap, to Mizpah and a net spread to capture on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. Now, if you remember at this time in Israel's history, okay, we'll give a little background to get a context, and then all this will make sense. After Solomon died, his son Rehoboam, adopted very harsh policies toward the northern 10 tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes. He, he became king and he adopted these very harsh policies which forced the northern tribes to secede, to split off, to form their own kingdom. Thus Rehoboam, Solomon's son, split the kingdom of Israel for the first time. Up until then it had been united and now it was divided from north to south. Okay? There were ten tribes in the north. The northern kingdom was the, the northern ten tribes and in the south was Judah and Benjamin that's called the kingdom of Judah. Okay, now at the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem, that's where the worship was that was prescribed by God. Okay, that worship was very specific as we saw in the book of Exodus. All the details, I don't know if you ever tried to read that on your own. All the details of the priesthood and the clothing of the priests and all the sacrifices, we saw those details in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers. The whole thing, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifice, all those details are details of a prophetic, interactive model of the gospel that was in the center of the national life of the united Israel for centuries, okay? 
every detail of the priesthood and the sacrifice and the tabernacle and the materials and the sockets and the gold and the bronze and the, the whole thing, the lampstand and the showbread and the tables and <laughs> all of it revealed something of who God is and what he would ultimately do for us in Jesus Christ. When we studied Leviticus and Numbers and, and Exodus, we looked at all those details. Okay, it's amazing. It's amazing that this was all a foreshadow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would take the blood off of the altar. We have some slides here. They would take the blood off of the altar and the out in the outer court, that's the altar, and they were, that's where the sacrifice and the blood was shed. They would take the blood and take it into the Holy of Holies, which was inside the tabernacle, and they sprinkled the blood over the mercy seat. Okay, the mercy seat is the lid that covers the Ark of the Covenant. And there was these cherubim that had their wings outspread. You see deep inside the Holy of Holies, the blood was sprinkled on the lid called the mercy seat, okay? Inside the Ark of the Covenant, okay, there's an x-ray view. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was three items that represented the sin, the failure, and the rebellion of the people, Okay, inside were the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments. When Moses was up on the mount receiving the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel had already broken them before he got down the hill, and he came down and he threw them on the ground and broke them. Those broken tablets were inside the Ark of the Covenant. There was a jar of manna that represented how they complained about God's provision of food in the wilderness, remember? And God sent quail until they were choking on it. (laughs) And there was also Aaron's rod that had budded, symbolizing how they rebelled. They had rebelled against God's chosen leadership, and there's a whole story in that. But in the Ark of the Covenant were these three items, interestingly enough, that represented sin, failure, and rebellion. And as the blood of the sacrifice stood between God would manifest his presence and meet there with the priest. This was a picture of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, when Jesus shows up on the scene, John the Baptist, who is the last Old Testament prophet, the first thing he said, recognizing here he is, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of those lambs, all those blood sacrifices were prophetic shadows of this one. His blood takes away our sin, our failure, even our rebellious actions. Okay? Imagine this. It was in the center of the life of the people of Israel for centuries, this prophetic picture looking forward. What a trip. What a trip, an interactive model of the gospel. And so when the kingdom split, okay, after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam enacting these harsh policies to the north, forcing them to secede, like some 
counties in California want to secede from California and form a new state, right? Like Texas wants to secede from the union and form their own country because of political policies. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he was heavy-handed with the north, and they said, we're out of here, and the kingdom split. But the problem is, is he cut the, t- the 10 northern tribes off from the worship at the temple, the worship that God prescribed. He was cutting them off from the knowledge of God and from the knowledge of God's redeeming love and his faithful mercy towards them. And they, the north didn't allow the people who even wanted to didn't allow them to travel south to worship God in truth at the tabernacle. They didn't allow it. Okay? They were paranoid that if we let the people go down there, their hearts will become loyal to the king of the southern kingdom of Judah and will lose their loyalty. So like a bunch of communists, they built walls to keep the people in. Okay? They didn't allow them to go down. It was politics over truth. It was politics over worship. And so in the north, what they did is they made, up, they made their own worship up in the north. It was unprescribed. It wasn't pres- prescribed by God. It wasn't according to exactly how God prescribed it at the temple, at the tabernacle. It wasn't reflective of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the one that the whole thing was to point to. And we saw there in, the la- in chapter four, remember what, the beginning of chapter four last week, God said, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings this charge against the inhabitants of the land. There's no truth. There's no truth up here in the north. Or mercy. Because the truth that was seen in the sacrifice at the tabernacle was that God is merciful. He's a redeeming lover of our souls. He himself is self-sacrificing to redeem us. It was all pointing to God who was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. They, were, they, they cut themselves off from the gospel that was there in shadow form. There was, there, and and the, the charge there we saw in chapter four, verse one, is there's no truth, there's no mercy, there's no knowledge of God up here in the north. Instead, empty and just looking to your idols. You're left only with what's in your flesh. All the swearing and lying and killing and stealing and adultery. Breaking all restraint with bloodshed. That was the charge. It was a mess up there because there was no truth. And thus, no mercy. No knowledge of God in the land. In the north, they began to worship God in their own way. They made up their own gods and their own religion. And it led to this gross idolatry all over the northern kingdom. And so this chapter, chapter five, starts with this indictment of the priests in the north. Notice what it says. Hear this, O priest. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread in Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, 
though I rebuke them all. Apparently, the priests in the north, in seeking to stop the people because they were all about their politics and their kingdom now, the kingdom having been divided, they were all about stopping the people, their people, from going to Jerusalem because they knew that their hearts would be melted by God, by the love of God. They knew that their hearts would become loyal and they would want to leave like millions of people all over the world have wanted to leave oppressive places like the Soviet Union. Like right now, Iranians want to get out of there because there's so many oppressive regimes that they have to build walls to keep people in. This is what it was like. And apparently, the priests were setting traps, snares, ambushes to catch people who were trying to escape to to the south to worship God at the temple in truth. Okay, and apparently they were catching them and slaughtering them. It got it was this evil. Okay, it was politics to them over a relationship with God. And God says, "I know Ephraim." Okay, this is how God referred to the Northern Kingdom sometimes, because Ephraim was the largest of the tribes of the north. And Israel, the northern kingdom was called Israel as well. The southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom was called Ephraim, was called Israel. I know Ephraim. And Israel is not hidden from me. For now, oh Ephraim, you commit harlotry. This is how God sees it when we, when we turn our backs on him and go to some other source of life. There is only one source of life the true and living God who's revealed himself, okay? This is our legitimate lover. God looks at all other sources that we may run to as going to prostitution. That's an illegitimate source of intimacy, okay? They're defiled by all their idols. Israel is defiled. God looks and he says, you're defiling yourself with all these idols you've made, because your idols are lies about me that keep you in horrible bondage. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst and they do not know the Lord. Okay, they made gods that their own minds invented. They fashioned these idols and they filled themselves with these lies. God says they don't know me. They go through the religious motions with their idols and they use even, the, they speak about the name of the Lord and all and God says, they don't know me. I'm not known in those idols that you've made. I'm known at, in the sacrifice at the temple, exactly how I prescribed it and it all again is a picture of the ultimate revelation of God in his son Jesus Christ who self-sacrificed himself In love, the blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat. And now our sin, our failure, our rebellion is taken away and God meets with us. He fills our lives with his spirit. His favor is upon us because of the shed blood of God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. 
He says here, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. As their lives devolved into a wretched mess and their foolish, pig-headed pride, they held on to what was destroying them. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Israel and Ephraim, the, the northern tribes, stumble in their iniquity. But notice what he says, and Judah also stumbles with them. You know, when we studied the history, first, first, second Chronicles, we saw the history of the southern tribe. Hosea is speaking to the northern tribes here. He was a prophet to the northern ten tribes. But when we already studied this up and down history of the two southern tribes called Judah, and they went up and down, okay? A wicked king would take the throne and he would promote idolatry. And then a godly king would arise, like Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. These were the godly kings. And they would bring the people back. They would destroy the idols. They would call for the complete destruction of all the idols. And they would bring the people back to offering the sacrifice that God prescribed through Moses that was that picture of God, the redeeming, sacrificing God, giving himself to redeem us, okay? But Judah stumbled, see that? It's a, it's a picture of stumbling, of getting up and falling, of getting up and falling. You know what, the, in the northern kingdom, there was not one good king, they were all wicked. They only promoted idolatry in the north. But Judah stumbled, okay? Continuing his rebuke of the 10 northern tribes, especially the priests, he says, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him because he's withdrawn from them. Because they, would, they were seeking God in their own way, in the way they made up. They made up their own religion, if you would, by making these gods that their own minds had invented, by bowing to these idols that their own hands had fashioned. Okay, if you have to make your god, you have to carve it into wood and then carry him around, you got the wrong god. Okay? God says, you won't find me that way. You're not gonna find me. You might use the words, you might use my name, you might say, here we go to worship, but if it's an idol, it's a lie, and it'll get you nowhere. You'll just find yourself in deeper and deeper bondage. And we've talked about this, that at the root of every bondage in our lives, and nobody here's arrived yet, we've all got issues still, but at the root of every bondage in my life is a lie that somewhere along the line I believed it and I received it. But the good news is, is that Jesus said, if you are my disciples truly, you will continue in my word and you'll know the truth about me, about God, and the truth will make you what? Free. See, in Jerusalem at the sacrifice was freedom. Because when you realize it, they, they would offer the sacrifice up. It wasn't, it wasn't something they did for God, okay? They, they slipped into that mentality at times, and God said, do you think I drink the blood of bulls and goats? 
If I was hungry, read Psalm 50. If I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you because I own the cattle on a thousand hills. The sacrifice I've called you to lift up, it speaks to you of who I am and what I will ultimately do for you and my son, Jesus Christ. It's just like when we take communion at church. A lot of people have this mentality, if I don't go to church and take communion, God's gonna be upset. Because as if going to church, it's what you do for God. And taking communion is this religious thing you do for God and then make, you make God happy. No, the communion that we take, that Jesus said, take this. It's a reminder of who he is and what he has done for us. It's not me doing something for him. It's what he's done for me. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And as I eat and drink of this redeeming love of God, oh, my life is healed. I'm, I'm, I'm brought back to rest in God. You see, we need to take communion because it's what God has done for us. We actually don't do anything for God. God doesn't need anything. He's doing very well, thank you very much. He doesn't even need your money. He doesn't, he's not broke. Contrary to what many a televangelist might tell you, he's doing very well. He's made some good investments, he's set for life, okay? He doesn't, we need him. I'm a little tiny speck of sinful humanity. I can't do anything for him. He do, he, I need what he's done for me. And as he fills me and he overflows my life, I, that's what we call glorifying him. The only way that we can know God, the only way is by taking heed to his revelation of himself. God says here in verse seven, you can go to verse seven, they've dealt treacherously with the Lord and ignoring the prescribed sacrifice as God revealed himself in the sacrifice. Now he's revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, which all the sacrifices pointed to. And ignoring and turning their back and, and doing their own thing with their idols, God says they've dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they've begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them in their heritage, verse eight, blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud in Beth-Avon, and look behind you, O Benjamin. Okay, the first three cities mentioned here are all in the north, and he's, God says cry out, in these cities. And then he says to Benjamin, which is the other tribe in the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, called this the kingdom of Judah. He says, Benjamin, watch your back. Watch your back, Benjamin. Because the south, looking to the north, was emulating their idolatry. And God says, watch out. Because Ephraim is going to be desolate. The one that you're looking to and emulating in their idolatry, they're going to be desolate. They're going to be emptied out in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is sure. The princes of Judah 
are like those, and he's speaking again to Judah, because he's pleading with Judah, don't go the way of your northern sister. Okay, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. God's looking at them like going, they're gonna bail on me too. <laughs> they're just like people that have no problem with removing a landmark. I'll pour my wrath on them like water. Judah was following after the northern tribes into idolatry. The leaders of Judah, God says, they're willing to remove the landmark. And he's speaking here, the landmark of the worship at the temple, in the sacrifice, exactly with every detail as God prescribed. They're willing to to remove this landmark. And they too will get spanked. God is saying here, and really hard. And we saw that recently. We saw that. They were carried away into Babylonian captivity. The north was carried away by the Assyrians. The south into Babylon for 70 years, a spanking. Ephraim is oppressed. He keeps, he, he's talking about the mess that the north is in and he tell, he's pleading with the south, don't go their way, they're oppressed up there. They're oppressed. <laughs> There's been so much oppression in the history of the world. Do you know how precious freedom is? In nations? Like this thing that I was born into called the United States of America with all this freedom. Do you know that this is a blip on the radar of human history? That most people throughout most of human history have been under terrible oppression where there's some person that thinks they, that they know how to fix humanity without God and they come up with these ideas and they, and, and, and they're, they, they wanna make things equal. They wanna make things just. And then they end up slaughtering millions of people to do it. And then they make such a hellhole that everybody wants to get out. In the United States, it was built by men that knew. One nation under God, indivisible, with truth and liberty for all. And we're still heading toward that. It's an idea that we haven't yet arrived at, but we're, we're moving toward it. But freedom. God's saying to Judah, don't look at them with their made-up stuff. It's oppressive up there. The people who want to get out, they can't even escape. And as they're trying, they're, they're trapped and they're being killed. This is the description of many nations right now in the world, today. What a trip. Ephraim's oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked, notice here, by human precept. He ignored God's word. He ignored the sacrifice at the temple that spoke to him of who I am and what I do for you. And they're, 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 gonna, they're gonna pull it off. It's a humanistic system where we're gonna make a nation, you know, and everybody's gonna have enough and everybody's gonna wanna escape it because you're, because man cannot rule men. They walked in 
by human precept. They made up their own gods instead of holding to the truth about God as he revealed himself. They walked according to human precept. Jack Hayford, who passed away a few years ago, a four-square pastor, one of the big influences in my life. He was from the same denomination that Chuck Smith was from before Chuck started Calvary Chapel, the four-square denomination. They went to the same Bible college together, Life Bible College. Jack became the, the dean of that Bible college afterwards, but Jack Hayford said this, beware the God that your mind invents, for you will inevitably worship and become like him, however wretched, however false. Best of all, find the true God who's revealed himself in his word and in his son, Jesus Christ, and filling your mind with the truth of his being, you'll learn his love, and you will treasure the life that he creates. All else is confusion. All else is ultimate despair. The self-sacrificial nature of God and his redeeming love were known in the sacrifice. And as they worshiped God, as he prescribed, they looked at God, they received of his love, his redeeming love, it worked in them, and then it was working through them, and they were loving one another, and it all worked. It was blessed, and they were free, and they were prosperous, and they were giving. But their source was God as God revealed himself. Therefore, God says, verse 12, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness as they turn their back on me, as they walk after human precept. We're, we're, we're so smart, and that's the, pro- that's the problem. We got all these smart people. We got all these smart people that wreck millions and millions of people's lives and oppress people. Smart people. But our smarts don't even come close to the foolishness of God. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, this isn't working. We're, We're destroying ourselves. We're destroying people and families. Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to, the, to King Jerob, making a wretched mess of themselves by living off of their own wisdom, their own smarts, filling their minds with these lies that they'd fashioned into the, their idols. They became spiritually sick and wounded. And what did they do? Instead of turning back to God... They, tr- they trusted in the flesh. They ran to Assyria for help. The Assyrians who will eventually come in and put hooks in their noses and pull them into the most brutal slavery that they could ever imagine. They ran. This is how foolish we can become. And God says, you're not gonna find a cure in, in the Assyrians. Remember when we studied Judah as Judah was turning from God, they were, they, were, they were trusting in Egypt. And God was saying, don't trust in Egypt, trust in me. The, the north was trusting in their alliances with the Assyrians. 
And God says, they're not going to heal your wound. They're going to wound you even more. They're going to put hooks in your noses and carry you away in chains into slavery. God says, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Until they acknowledge their offense. And then they will seek my face in their affliction. And they will earnestly seek me. Notice next, the text keeps flowing here. It shouldn't, there shouldn't be a chapter break. It's all one flow here into chapter six. Come, let us return to the Lord, Hosea's pleading by God's spirit. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken us, he has spanked us, but he will bind us up. This is the prayer here, chapter six, verse one. This is the prayer that trusts in the love of God, okay? This is the prayer that sees the loving hand of God even in this hard chastening. You know, many a rebellious child will accuse their parents of not loving them. How can this be love? This hurts so bad, this spanking you're giving me. You know, when you're a little kid, you think you're gonna die. You're not even, you're not even close to dying. If, if your parents chasten you and discipline you properly, God gave a little padded place right here. Boom. It can sting, but it won't hurt, it won't harm. You don't hit your kid in the back with a two-by-four in the back and break his spine. God gave a little spot here for chastening. But many a rebellious kid is like, you don't love me, this hurts. How can this be love if it hurts so bad? Hebrews 12 said, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. The proverb says that he that spares discipline, he who withholds discipline from his child, hates his child. You know, if you're yet to be a parent, just real briefly, your job for the first four years of your child's life is to shape them to be socially acceptable among the people that they're among. If you let your kids scream and throw tantrums, everyone around your kids will be going, I I can't stand this little, little rat. You know, if, if they're undisciplined, then everywhere they go, and little kids, they pick stuff up. They pick the vibe up. Nobody likes me. You're, you're ruining your kid. But to tell your kid you can't just scream and throw yourself on the ground, you need to say please, you need to say thank you, you need to show respect, and you know what? Your little kid, by four years old, I think it's about four years old, they're set. And if everybody looks at them like, you're such a cool, we love, you know, come here, you, you know. You know what effect that has on a kid growing up at five, six, seven, eight years old? Every room you walk into, everyone's like, we're so glad to see you, as opposed to, oh no, you again? And then we wonder why when they're 16, 17, 18, they, these, some of these kids have these social feelings of like, 
isolation and nobody wants me around. That's the job of a parent. And here, this prayer, Hosea realizes God's discipline, is his, it's been his love. He's, his loving hand that disciplined us is, will heal us. Okay? But the rebellious heart that's not submitted, they don't recognize nor receive that love. Hosea knows that in all this hard discipline coming on Israel, it's all out of God's great love. This is what you feel in this prayer, in this first verse. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Hosea is seeing beyond the scattering of the 12 tribes. And many, some, some actually have seen this as a prophecy. Okay, they say that if you look at the nation of Israel, it's been almost 2,000 years since they've existed as a nation. Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD, when most of the Jews, a million were killed and most of them were scattered all over the world. Now if we take Peter's, what Peter said to, to the first century believers concerning the end, the end time, Listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So if there's some that look at this, and I'm not fully convinced, it does fit, but I'm not dogmatic about this, but using Peter's formula here, a day would be, there, there's been two days Okay, after two days, he'll revive us. Two days would be 2,000 years. Okay, Hosea is speaking here about the scattering of Israel. You know, some have seen in this, this a prophecy of the revival that we have been witnessing in our lifetime over the last 100 years that's still underway right now. It's happening as Jewish people from the scattered tribes have been making their way back to their ancient homeland that God promised to Abraham 4,000 years ago that they dwelt in for centuries. Using Peter's formula, it's been about two days. After two days, he will revive us. Okay, this interpretation is not completely definitive, but it could be. And I have to admit, it does fit. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. If we keep with Peter's formula about one day being a thousand years, Hosea would be saying here that there will be a third day that Israel will live again in God's sight. Another thousand year period that the Bible does speak of called the millennial reign. If this is the interpretation, if we're to take Peter's formula, this would mean that Israel right now is on the verge of a time of trouble like they've never seen. 
A, a time that the prophets in the Old Testament spoke of, of the, the, a time of Jacob's trouble. That it's, a, it's a time that the New Testament in the book of Revelation speaks of as the great tribulation that immediately precedes this thousand-year reign of Christ, which will be a time when God will fulfill everything that is unfulfilled in Israel, when all the failures that we see as we study the Old Testament will be turned into success. And that will lead into the coming of the new heavens and new earth. This would all mean that the Lord's coming soon. <laughs> okay? Because Israel's being brought back after two days, after 2,000 years, and there's another day where the Israel will live again. And right now, it's not living. Right now, it, it's, it's a mess, and the whole world is surrounding them, just like the prophet said, to want to destroy them. If Peter's formula is right, and if this is what this is, a prophecy, thrown in here, it would mean that it's time for the third day to commence. It's very interesting. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm fully convinced, but it's a very interesting proposal. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, Hosea cries out, let us pursue the knowledge of God. Now in that third day, that millennial reign, to know God in that day will just be to look at their Messiah, Jesus, who's the son of David, who will rule in that period. All they have to do is look at him, just like if you want to know God. If you want to know God, study the Bible, right? Well, you know what? The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The whole New Testament is about Jesus. It's interesting. I love studying the Old Testament. All these shadows and foreshadows and the whole river is flowing to Jesus. But sometimes if I'm just somewhere and I just need to refocus on God, all I have to do is think about Jesus. God was in Christ. Who is God? He looks exactly like Jesus. Okay? It says in Hebrews chapter one that God in times past spoke in different ways through the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us in his son who is the exact representation of God's being, the exact image of the invisible God. In the millennial reign of Christ, Israel, as Hosea is crying out, let us know the Lord. All they have to do is look at Jesus. If you wanna know the Lord, just look at Jesus especially Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's even reduced down to the cross. Everything we need to know about God is found in the cross of Christ. It's all, it's, this is, the whole thing is genius. God, you're a genius. He's like, thank you, Greg. I was wondering, right? There's God. He's self-giving sacrificing, redeeming, lover. That's who God is. Everything we need to know about God. What he thinks about you, what he feels about you. He thinks that you're worth his son to him because he gave his son for you. He so loved you that he gave his son. That's what he thinks about you. How does he feel? He loves you. 
Where do you get that? I get it in the cross. What does he think about my sin? It's serious. Christ had to pay the price. It's all there. The whole Bible is it's condensed in Jesus. Jesus' whole life and ministry is condensed in the cross. Here, Hoseas, I, I, I think he may be looking toward that third day that's coming when Israel will live again, where they will know the Lord and pursue the knowledge of the Lord, and that'll simply be by looking at their Messiah, Jesus, who it's all summed up in him. Pretty cool. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the later and the former rain to the earth. Oh, Ephraim. Now Hosea comes back from that third day. He comes back to the present state of Ephraim, of the 10 northern tribes, and he looks at him and he says to Ephraim, what shall I do to you? Oh, Judah, what shall I do to you? Your faithfulness is like the morning cloud, like the early dew, it goes away. I don't know if you've ever, I grew up by the beach. In many days, there was that overcast in the morning, but by 11, 12 o'clock, it would all burn off, you know. God's looking at Ephraim and Judah going, you're like that, you just, your faithfulness is just like here and then it's gone. You're just fickle. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I sent my prophets to chisel away at you. <laughs> I've, I've slain you by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. They had slipped into this idea that God that we're supposed to bring these offerings because God just needs us to bring the offering. And God's like going, that's not the point. I don't need the offering. I don't need anything. I don't drink the blood of bulls and goats. If I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I want you to offer the offering so you could see who I am. I'm merciful. I am your redeemer. I desire mercy. I desire that you see and experience my mercy because as my mercy works in you, it will eventually work through you and now your whole community will be working as you're loving each other, not ripping each other off and using and abusing each other. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire you to know me, the knowledge of God. Not you bring in your little religious offering. That's, if, if that's all it is, you're missing the whole point. You offer the offering so you can know me. I desire the knowledge of God, not your offering. You see what he's saying here? But like men, they transgress the covenant. They dealt treacherously with me. They, you, you turn your back on me. You bailed on my prescribed worship and the sacrifice at the temple and you made your idols and now you're empty. And the only thing you're left with is yourself and what's in your flesh and there's nothing good there. Like Paul said, in me that is in my flesh, there's no good thing. Oh, how we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to look at him and go, here's, here's, here's what God is like. Here's the image of the invisible God. 
You know what it'll do for you? You sinful, failing, stumbling person, it'll encourage you. Because he's not out to get you like you think. He's out to get you, to bring you close. When we look at Jesus Christ and him crucified, we realize, oh my gosh, my sins, he paid the price. He loves me. He's not mad at me. He's not sick and tired of me. He's not ready to kick me in the head. As we keep our eyes on him, the knowledge of God. There's the knowledge of God. Gilead is a city of evildoers. Let's finish this up. Defiled with blood, the bands of robbers lie in wait. The company of the priests, they murder people on the way to Shechem. Surely, they commit lewdness. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There's harlotry in Ephraim with all their idols. Israel is defiled. Oh, also Judah. A harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. As we've said before, the record of the Old Testament is a record of the failure of the flesh of man. The record of the Old Testament is simultaneously the record of the faithfulness of God. How much pain are we gonna bring on ourselves by trying to do it our way? When will we ever learn, like Van Morrison used to sing, When will I ever learn to live in God? Will I ever learn? When will I learn to just keep my eyes on Jesus? That will keep me close to God. Close to God, filled with his spirit. His love will work in me and through me to the people around me, including starting with my wife and my kids and the people around me wherever I go. This is all he wants from us. Do you know that all God wants from you is that you receive his love, let it work in you until it works through you? That's it. He doesn't want anything else. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, if, if it doesn't matter what else I do, if I have not love, if I have not love, he goes, it profits me nothing. Zero. God's not interested in my religious Motions. He wants me to know his love, which is revealed definitively in crystal clarity in Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wants that love working in my heart and working through me to the people around me. That's what he wants. That's all he wants. You could miss church for months and God's not mad at you. You know? Take communion. Be reminded of his love. Eat it and drink it till it fills you and then overflows you. That's all he wants. That's all he wants. It's amazing. It's good news. Thank you, Jesus, for the word of God that all flows to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and revealed God. Thank you for the cross that says it all. It's all summarized, condensed right there. May we know you, God, because you desire not sacrifice, not religious rituals, but you desire us to know you, the knowledge of God. You desire us to eat and drink of your mercy 
and your love until it works in our hard hearts, selfish hearts, and then it works through us in love to others. May it be, may this be, Lord. May this happen in us. May it increase in us to your glory and our greater joy. We ask it all in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said together, amen. Blessings upon you. We'll see you next week, chapter seven next week. Say hi to somebody on your way out. God bless.